Welcome to the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan Podcast. This podcast is written and presented to you by husband and wife team Dr. Sandra Camerata and Dr. Giovanni Campanile. Sandra is a psychiatrist and was born and raised in Sicily, and Giovanni is a cardiologist. They have written the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan book and podcast in order to introduce a wider audience to the wonderful taste and health benefits of the Sicilian Mediterranean diet, which will lead you onto a path of longevity and improved health span, the reduction of disease in the later part of your life. The goal is to live not only longer, but better with improved vitality and joy of life. Their motto is Be Well Deliciously. We are very excited and honored to have today as our guest, Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Dean Ornish is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. He is also the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute. Dean Ornish received his medical training in internal medicine from the Baylor College of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Ornish received a BA in Humanities, summa cum laude, from the University of Texas. For over 30 years, Dean Ornish has directed clinical research demonstrating that comprehensive lifestyle changes may begin to reverse even the most severe coronary heart disease without drugs or surgery. Recently, Medicare agreed to provide coverage for this program. The first time it has covered such a program involving comprehensive lifestyle changes. Dr. Ornish recently directed the first randomized controlled trial demonstrating that comprehensive lifestyle changes may stop or reverse the progression of prostate cancer. His current research shows that comprehensive lifestyle changes affect gene expression, turning on disease-preventing genes and turning off genes that promote cancer and heart disease. And Dean Ornish is the author of six best-selling books, including Dr. Dean Ornish Program for Reversing Heart Disease, Eat More, Weight Less, Love and Survival, and his most recent book, The Spectrum. Dr. Ornish contributes and writes a monthly column for Newsweek magazine. The research that Dean Ornish and his colleagues conducted has been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, The Lancet, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, Circulation, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the American Journal of Cardiology. A one-hour documentary of their work was broadcasted on NOVA, the PBS Science Series, and was featured on Bill Moyer's PBS series, Healing and the Mind. The group's work has also been featured in all major media, including cover stories in Newsweek, Time, and U.S. News and World Report. So we're very excited to have Dean as our guest today. Dean is a particularly interesting person. He's a friend and uh, a mentor, and he has a very interesting background. He was very instrumental in teaching the world the benefits 
of lifestyle change and how it affects many serious diseases. As Sandra mentioned, he's written many books, but actually the most recent book is Undo It that he wrote with his wife, Anne, which was a national bestseller. This talk will be fascinating in many ways. We will talk about things like telomeres, which are the ends of DNA that affect how long a DNA lives or doesn't live and how they're affected by the changes in this program. We will talk about uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, who's won the Nobel Prize and her work with telomeres and how lifestyle change has affected this. We'll also talk about how many diseases have very similar risk factors. So by a comprehensive lifestyle change program, we will see how it affects other diseases such as prostate cancer and Alzheimer's disease. In addition, Dr. Ornish will talk about how the emotional state and the spiritual state is very much a factor in improving uh, outcomes. He wrote a book early on called Love and Survival, The Scientific Basis for Healing Power of Intimacy. We'll talk a little bit about that book, about spiritual hunger, love and community, self-kindness, and the interesting fact that you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others, and how the heart is a perfect metaphor of this, where the heart pumps blood to itself first and then to the rest of the body. We'll also talk about things like erectile dysfunction and how lifestyle change can affect this problem that affects many people, many men, uh, as they get older. We'll talk about something called genetic heat maps. These are tools that are used by researchers to look at genes, and we can see how lifestyle change turns on beneficial genes and turns off harmful genes, such as genes that cause cancer. He wrote a book also called The Spectrum, which is a scientifically proven program to feel better, live longer, lose weight, and gain health. How eating a optimal diet such as this can result in weight loss, and the average weight loss patients did not have as a, as a goal, but it just became a goal or became a factor of the diet was 24 pounds. And we'll talk about how patients or people self-medicate with foods and other chemicals, alcohol, and also finally, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and how our primary goal is not as Freud had said, for pleasure, but the discovery and pursuit of what we personally find meaningful. Without further ado, let's start with this incredible interview with my friend and mentor and colleague, Dr. Dean Ornish. Well, Dean, thank you for uh, taking your time to talk to us about uh, all the great things you're doing with lifestyle change. This is a really amazing stuff. You know, as uh, you know, we work together, and I have seen firsthand in very sick patients uh, what an impact you know, this has. But if you could uh, explain to our listeners exactly what the Dean Ornish Reversal of Heart Disease Program is, uh, uh, I, I would like that as a start. And and tell us who brought you to do it, to create this program. Yeah, your journey to get there. <laughs> well, it's first of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you both and, uh, you know, with, and, and your listeners. And Giovanni, it's been wonderful working so closely with you over the years. And I have such great both admiration and affection for you. Uh, and so 
and the leadership that you've shown. So it's a great pleasure to be on your on your podcast. And I can testify that he has always been a great admirer of your work and work. Oh, thank you. Interesting enough, but when he was running your program, um, he would you know we shared some patients that also. You know, I'm a psychiatrist, so some of the patients that came through the program were also my patients, and they were always, always thrilled about the benefits that they got. Oh, Not just the physical benefits, but the emotional benefits that they got. So, Thank you. Well, I appreciate your pointing out that it's not just a diet. It's not just a physical heart disease. It's dealing with the psychosocial, the emotional, and the spiritual dimensions as well. Uh, I got interested in doing this work when I was a medical student in uh, 1970, let's see, 1977, 76 actually, at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I grew up in Texas. And I was doing my core surgery rotation with Michael DeBakey, one of the pioneers of heart surgery, who you know was one of the people who invented bypass surgery. And he was very old school and a bit of a tyrant. You know, he, would, he was the kind of guy who would uh, stick you with a needle and draw blood if you didn't move your fingers quickly enough out of the operating field, that kind of thing. And he said, what year are you, son? I said, I'm just starting my third year. He said, damn, it's going to be so much harder to bust you out of here with all these weird ideas you have. Uh, I, I will add as a, as a footnote, he actually called me uh, about four years ago at the age of 99. I hadn't heard from him literally in decades since I was a student. And he said, hey, this is Mike DeBakey. And a very, he had a very distinctive Louisiana accent that I recognized immediately after all these years. I said, so what do I owe this honor? He said, well, you know all those weird ideas I used to give you such a hard time about when you were my medical student? I said, oh, yeah, I remember really well. He goes, that's what's kept me alive all these years. He said, I'm 99 years old. I'm going to probably die soon. And I just thought you'd like to know my wife got interested in your work, and it's really been great for me. So, you know, if you live long enough, you just never know. Things may finally come around. Anyway, um, so at that that's time- great. That's a great story because- you know, it goes to show even the the hardest, the people in that are so set in their ways can change. It's true. I, he wouldn't even participate in randomized trials. He was so convinced that bypass surgery was, you know, curative. And, you know, we'd cut people open, we'd bypass their clogged arteries. He'd, he'd tell them they were cured and they'd go home and more often than not, they would do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place. You know, eat junk food and smoke cigarettes and not manage stress, not exercise. And all too often, their new bypasses would clog up and we'd cut them open again. So, that got me interested in, like, there's got to be a better way. And so I went to these things that they used to have back then called libraries with these things called journals, you know, and I got really kind of obsessed with reading that, you know, in dogs and cats and pigs and rabbits and monkeys, you could cause them to get heart disease if you put them on a typical American diet or put them under chronic emotional stress or uh, made them smoke cigarettes or didn't let them exercise, et cetera. Uh, and you could reverse it if you changed all those things. I said, well, why should humans be any different? They said, oh, they just are, you know, and one of the nice things about being a medical student is that you don't know enough yet to know what's not possible. You're not fully indoctrinated. So I took a year off between my second and third years of medical school, and uh, the chief of medicine donated the uh, testing, and the chief of cardiology referred patients. And that was one of the great things about going to medical school in Texas is that it's very non-hierarchical. They have this very um, kind of pioneering ethos. You got this weird idea, you know, go for it. We'll support it. You, even if it doesn't work, you'll learn something, you know. Anyway, I did that and took 10 men and women, put them in a hotel for a month, put them on this program. And after a month, eight of the 10 people got better and not only felt better, but they were better in ways we could measure. The blood flow to the heart improved using what was then a new test, thallium scintigraphy, and their angina went away in most cases. And so it just got me, it also was my first 
lesson that when you're doing something that uh, doesn't fit within the conventional wisdom, it's really met with a lot of resistance. People said, oh, you know, that's impossible. It couldn't have happened. I said, well, you did the test. You know, why are these tests so no longer any good? Well, uh, how do you know they would have gotten better anyway? You didn't have a randomized control group. I said, well, strictly that's speaking, that's true. But how often do you see your patients? Have you ever seen any of your patients get better to this degree? No, but that's beside the point. Anyway, so I went back to school, finished medical school, did a second study. This time we did have a randomized control group and we published that in JAMA. And we found the ability of the heart to pump blood got better in the experimental group, worse in the control group. After just less than a month, um, published that in JAMA, went to Boston to do my uh, medical internal medicine residency. And, um, and I also learned how hierarchical the whole Harvard system is. I could never have done this work uh, had I gone there for medical school. So it was really kind of a blessing. Moved to San Francisco, did the most definitive study, the lifestyle heart trial, which we can, I mean, basically we ironically were using these very high-tech state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very low-tech and low-cost and often ancient interventions can be. And we found that after a year, the amount of blockage in the coronary arteries that feed the heart got less clogged over time. And then we got NIH funding to extend it to for a total of five years, found there was some reversal after one year, even more reversal after five years. Whereas the randomized control group who were making the kind of changes that most doctors were recommending at the time, you know, exercise, less red meat, more fish and chicken, all that kind of thing. They got worse after one year and even worse after five years. And we published the one-year findings in the Lancet, the leading international peer-reviewed journal, and the five-year findings after uh, in JAMA. And we also did cardiac PET scans to measure blood flow. And we found there was a 400% a improvement in blood flow in the group that made the lifestyle changes compared to the group that didn't, which we published as a, as a separate paper. And having published that, I thought, well, now that'll really change medical practice. And to some degree it did, but not nearly as much as I had hoped. And I realized that while science is important, the primary determinant of medical practice all too often is reimbursement. And, um, and so I thought, you know, we really need to get reimbursement if this is going to be more than just a footnote. So I went to uh, the people at Medicare. Uh, Bill Clinton supported it. He's talked publicly about how he's been on this program for many years. How it really helped reverse his heart disease. Wow. Uh, Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House, also supported it. It helped one of his family members. And we had the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, who really didn't get along about much of anything. This is one of the few things they came together on. And we had you know, probably 15 senators across the political spectrum, 30 or so members of the House of Representatives, again, across the political spectrum, heads of the ARP, major American Board of Internal Medicine. And it took 16 years. I had no idea it would take so long. Although when I talk to people in government, they go, only 16 years, <laughs> you know? So, but Medicare in 2010 created a new benefit category to cover our program. And that really was a game changer because if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and even medical education. And then about two and a half years ago, because of the COVID epidemic, Medicare began covering it when we were doing it virtually via Zoom. So now we can reach people. We don't have to just, they don't have to live near one of the hospitals or clinics that we train. They could live anywhere and we do it all by Zoom and it's reimbursed. So now that helps reduce health disparities and health inequities. And we can get it to people, you know, out in the, in the comfort of their own home. And it's equally safe and effective, and most people prefer that because they don't have to, you know, drive to a hospital and worry about getting exposed to people or, you know, take off from work and and so on. So now we're we're working with. If any of your um, people are listening to this, just go to ornish.com if they're interested in our our virtual reversing heart disease program. We can now uh, work with you on that, and so that's been very gratifying. The program itself is has four components. 
the diet, of course, which is essentially a whole foods, plant-based diet, essentially a vegan diet, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products, unprocessed as much as possible as it comes in nature, uh, low in sugar, low in refined carbs, low in fat, high in all the good things. You know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of protective substances, as you know, in fruits and vegetables that are protective, phytochemicals, bioflavonoids, carotenoids, retinols, isoflavones, genesine, lycopene, on and on, that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, even anti-aging properties. Um, we uh, Exercise is not surprising, both uh, aerobic and strength training, meditation, another yoga-based stress management technique, stretching, breathing, meditation, and so on. And um, the uh, social support, uh, the love more part of the programs, uh, support groups is what we use, but anything that creates an intimacy, you know, love yourself, love others. And to reduce it to its essence, it's uh, eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. So maybe we can spend just a few minutes on, on each of those in, in more detail. We found that um, in a book I wrote called Undo It that I co-authored with my wife, Anne, a few years ago, um, I wondered, like, over the last 45 years of doing these studies, why is it that these same lifestyle changes can reverse so many different of the most common and costly chronic diseases? You know, we found these same lifestyle changes can reverse heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, early stage prostate cancer. Uh, we're now uh, completing the first randomized trial to see if these might even slow stop or even reverse the progression of men and women with early stage Alzheimer's disease. And I'm um, you know, cautiously optimistic about that. And so, um, you know, why is it that with all this interest in personalized medicine that these same lifestyle changes can affect so many different things? And the reason is, is that they're not so different. You know, you and I were trained to view, uh, the three of us were trained to view uh, heart disease and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and so on as being uh, fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. But it turns out they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, in telomeres, and gene expression, in immune function, in sympathetic nervous system overstimulation. And each of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and social support we have. And so it provides a unifying theory to kind of radically simplify. The, one of the first quote, the very first quote in the Undo It book is a quote attributed to uh, Albert Einstein. He says that if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I wanted to try to reduce it to its essence, you know, that it's really, it kind of radically simplifies what we tell people. And it's not all or nothing. If you're trying to reverse a chronic disease, it's, it's, it's hard. The reason we were able to show these things for the first time is that most people don't go far enough. It's the pound of cure as opposed to the answer prevention. If you're just trying to stay healthy, to the degree you make these changes, you're going to have a corresponding benefit. We found the more you change, the more you improve at any age, which is uh, an empowering finding. We also found these same lifestyle changes could um, lengthen telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate cellular aging. We did this with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres. And um, it had been shown by others that uh, chronic stress can make your telomeres get shorter faster. And as your telomeres get shorter, your life gets shorter, and the risk of all these other diseases goes up. You know, because I don't know if people really know that. So if you could just uh, just uh, let people know what sure. are we talking about. Yeah, we... telomeres are the ends of our DNA that um, they're kind of like the plastic tip that 
keeps your shoelace from unraveling. They keep our DNA from unraveling. And as DNA copies and replicates itself over time, the telomeres get shorter. And as the telomeres get shorter, the risk of all these different chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, go up, or even Alzheimer's, go up proportionate to that. And other studies that she and others, Alyssa Apple and others had done, found that chronic stress makes your telomeres get shorter faster, makes you age faster, if you will. So does smoking cigarettes or being sedentary or eating junk food and so on. Whereas, uh, so I thought, you know, if bad things make them shorter, maybe good things make them longer. So we did a study and we found that after just um, three months, the telomerase, the enzyme that repairs and lengthens telomeres, went up by 30%, which we published in the Lancet Oncology. And over a five-year period, we found for the first time that actually any intervention, it turned out the same lifestyle changes, could lengthen telomeres, whereas they got shorter in the control group. And when we published this, the Lancet editors said, first study showing that lifestyle changes may reverse aging at a cellular level. And I just turned 70 a few days ago, so I'm, these studies are more important to me now even than when we did them. <laughs> and the other thing we did, we did a study with Craig Venter that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your gene expression. And in fact, turns on the genes that keep you healthy and turns off the genes that cause us to get sick. And particularly- that, Do you think that is uh, the way this works? Do you think our bodies genetically are meant to be, this reestablishes how we're meant to be genetically. And that's why your approach works in such a great way because uh, you know our genes predict what we're going to we you know how we are phenotypically how our how we so is this just exposing our genes to the proper way to be like we're meant to be you know as hunter gatherers or whatever in the past our genes you know where genetically we still are what, what's your feeling about that well, it's not even a feeling. It's like, uh, I think it was a, uh, Jonas Salk, you know, discovered the polio vaccine. He said, I don't have faith, I have experience. So it's not so much a feeling or faith, it's what we've actually shown. And what we've shown is that the genes that regulate these biological mechanisms that we talked about earlier, that are part of this unifying theory, in other words, that the, the, the genes that control inflammation and oxidative stress and all these things that underlie so many different chronic diseases are the ones that are turned off when people make these lifestyle changes. We found that in our studies and Someone else who did uh, a study of one of our other programs in, in Pennsylvania found the same thing as well. So it gives us a biological plausibility for understanding that. And it's also, I think, very encouraging because so often, I'm sure you have, both of you have patients who say, oh, I've just got bad genes. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, exactly. Even when Bill Clinton was first diagnosed, his cardiologist went on CNN and said, oh, it's all in his genes and his diet and lifestyle had nothing to do with it. And having worked with President Clinton for many years, I knew it had everything to do with it, you know. But, you know, I, I sent a note to him. I said, you know, you're one of those powerful people in the world. Uh, if it's all in your genes, then you're a victim. And you're not a victim. You're, you know, a powerful guy. Uh, our genes are a predisposition. But if we change our lifestyle sufficiently, the things that turn our genes off and on, the methylation and the uh, sirtuins and the uh, histone and non-histone proteins and so on, act as switches that turn the genes off or on. So, while you may not be actually changing the structure of the gene, if you can turn off a gene that causes you to get sick, functionally, it's as though you've changed your genes. And that's very empowering for a lot of people, not to blame people, but to empower them to say, you know, our genes are a predisposition, but in most cases, our genes are not our fate. And if we're willing to make big enough changes, we now have one of many mechanisms to explain why these simple lifestyle changes are so powerful. And that's been my biggest obstacle over the last 45 years, and I'm sure it's been true for both of you as well. People say, oh, Diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. You know, it's got to be a new drug, a new laser, a new device, something really high tech and expensive to be powerful. And again, I think our unique contribution has been to use these very 
high-tech measures to prove how powerful these very low-tech interventions can be. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, something that impressed me is that, I, you know, I give a lot of talks, even to the cardiology department, you know, and when I talk about a, um, a structured lifestyle change, some of the cardiologists would say, you're doing this drastic intervention. How do you know it works? And I always say, how do you call this a drastic intervention when we're doing stents and bypass surgery? <laughs> I remember when I... I remember when I was trying to get Medicare to cover the program at year like year eight of 16, as it turned out, I was talking with a then head of Medicare who was like almost 300 pounds and chain smoked just parenthetically. And he said, um, why are you doing this radical intervention? Why don't you do something more conventional, like cutting people's chests open or putting, you know, radioactive stents in their arteries or whatever? I mean, it's crazy. Right. Um, that's the way it is, you know? And, uh, or they'll say, oh, there's, I can't even get my people, my patients to eat less red meat. I expect them to make all these lifestyle changes. And the paradox, and I'm sure you found both found this to be true as well, is that sometimes it's actually easier to get people to make big changes all at once than small gradual changes, even though it's counterintuitive. Because when you make small changes, you, you have the hassle of not being able to eat or do everything you want, but you're not making changes big enough to really notice much change. But when you make big changes all at once, most people will find they feel so much better so quickly, their chest pain, their angina often goes away completely. It reframes the reason for making those changes from fear of preventing something, another heart attack or a stroke down, you know, years down the road, which is hard for people to really sustain, to like, oh, because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, I feel so much better now. It changes the whole equation to not just preventing something bad from happening, but what I gain is so much more than what I give up. I can think more clearly. I have more energy. My, you know, my um, heart is getting more blood flow. My chest pain is going away. My sexual function is getting better. My uh, memory is getting better. You know, all the things that quality of life, I can do things, I can play with my kids, I can be with my spouse, I can go back to work. And for many people, those are choices worth making. Yeah, I'll probably live longer, but so many people are depressed, you know, telling somebody who's depressed they're going to live longer is really not that motivating. So it uh, the paradox is, you know, there was a study that um, uh, at UC San Diego that they did, they were offering both traditional cardiac rehab and our, what, the, what Medicare calls intensive cardiac rehab. And they compared both programs and they found that only 68% of the people finished the 36 hours of traditional cardiac rehab, but 96% of the people finished all 72 hours of the intensive program, even though it was much, it was twice as many sessions and it was, much, we're asking them to make bigger changes again, because the outcomes were so much better. Very good. So now when you, when you're seeing these changes, that clearly dramatic changes and people start feeling better and people start doing more. Have you uh, watched their level of depression or anxiety or other mood changes? And have you monitored that? Are there any data? Yeah. That no, we, 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 we've been giving depressions a standard CESD depression score. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. And we found their depression scores. We have data now on, on almost 15,000 patients who've gone through our programs. And their depression scores are decreased by almost 50% which as you know, is better than SSRIs or other things like that. And we're not even focusing on depression. But this kind of brings us to the, to the love more aspect of our program. And to me, one of the, I mean, I was suicidally depressed when I was in college. So I have a personal interest in this and came probably as close as you can to committing suicide without actually doing it. That's what got me interested in this whole approach, which I wrote about in a couple of my books. And so um, the worst thing about being depressed is that you feel like you're actually seeing things clearly for the first time. And I'm sure as a psychiatrist, you you know that better than I do. And all the times you ever thought you were ever going to be happy, you were just fooling yourself. And it's a reality distortion. And so 
And to me, one of the, the the epidemics, the pandemics, are not just COVID, but it's depression and loneliness and isolation with the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people a sense of of love and connection and community. And um, and study after I wrote a book back in 1998 called Love and Survival that reviewed what were then hundreds, but now there are literally tens of thousands of studies showing that people who are lonely and depressed are many times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything that has that big an impact, in part because of behavior, in part through mechanisms we don't fully understand. And so, um, you know, 50 years ago, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a, a job that felt secure that they got to know their coworkers because they'd been at for many years. They had a, a church or synagogue or mosque or club or something they went to regularly. They had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people who grew up together that really supported each other. And many people don't have any of those things. The Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written a lot about that recently. Has made that one of his centerpieces, which is wonderful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, we find that we find that to be very important. As you know, uh, Sandra and I have done some research and some work on uh, uh, in Sicily, and we find that people that live longer in Sicily are people that feel needed and they're connected to their community and their family, and that's. Exactly. Uh, I think that's been shown, you know, by the Blue Zones, lots of other people yeah. now as, as well. Also, in your so, program, the, uh, you know, when I was uh, directing the program, you know, I, you know, I could understand right from the beginning about the exercise, the diet, the stress reduction, but I didn't have a lot of experience with the group sessions. And it just amazed me the changes, those group sessions, the connection in those group sessions made. And yes. I still have group now, 10 years later. Most of these groups are still together. They still are. It's part of their 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 lifestyles to get together with the the people in those groups, and they they really love each other. They really support each other. It's it's an it's an amazing transformation. It's truly amazing, and and I see it over and over and over again. Even now by Zoom, I thought, well, there's no way we can do this by Zoom, and by Zoom it works just as well. People who've been who've never actually physically met each other uh, form these communities that are, and they we have people in our earlier studies, you know. 40 years later, they're still meeting, you know, uh, because it's a fundamental human need that so often goes unfulfilled. So our support groups, as you both know, are not just designed to help people stay on the diet. They're a powerful intervention in their own right, because, you know, we put people in a support group, we make it safe for them to let down their emotional defenses and talk openly and authentically about what's really going on in their lives without fear that, um, that you know, someone's going to make fun of them or, or criticize them or give them glib advice or whatever, just to to feel safe and connected. And it's such a powerful thing. And so the love more is the part of the program that people often, they say, well, I get the exercise, you know, you're really actually doing something and got to eat. It's just a question of what. And yeah, the stress management, that makes sense too. Um, although I remember when I was at uh, Mass General doing my residency, uh, one of the heads of one of the major departments said, you really think that the mind affects the body? What a stupid idea. <laughs> you know. So we've come a long way since then even. But the love more people say, what, what's, it, what's that about? And it's about creating that sense of love and connection and community. It's also about, you know, loving yourself and having compassion for yourself. And um, and and you know, sometimes, you know, when we start a support group, I'll say, so which organ does your heart pump blood first? So people say, oh, the brain or the heart. I mean, or the uh, you know some other organs, and they'll say, no, it actually pumps blood to itself first, so that it can then take care of the rest of the body. Is that a selfish or an unselfish act? Well, it's both because. If the heart doesn't pump blood to itself, then the rest of the body dies. So clearly, and we say, you know, take care, you know, love, learn to love yourself first in all the ways that may manifest, you know, physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, whatever. Love yourself first, forgive yourself first, have compassion 
for yourself first so that you can then be loving and compassionate and forgiving of other people. You know, the more you love yourself, the more love you have to give others. You know, in the Talmud, it says, you know, I'm not... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Paying attention to yourself, right? Which is something that we don't often do, right? That we don't pay attention enough to the environment we're in, to other people around us. Yes. Well, we don't pay attention to ourselves, how our body feels, if we're tired or not. If we're stressed or not, we don't even understand the signals that our body or a mind yeah. brain is giving us. So in the end, we come out with depression, with chest pain, but we have dismissed or not listened for so long to the small yeah. changes or the small whispers that our body was saying, or even bigger, you know, calls for slowing down and paying attention. Exactly. That's beautifully said. It's kind of like a boat that goes a little off course. If you catch it early, you can bring it back easily. Otherwise, it can drift thousands of miles out to sea. And so to me, awareness is always the first step in healing and awareness of yourself, again, so that you can then be more aware of others. You know, in the Talmud, it says, if I'm not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, who am I? And so, you know, loving yourself, you know, in all the ways that that can manifest, uh, I think is, uh, is an important step so that you have more love to give others. Absolutely. That's always the way to, to start. And I'm impressed to hear how uh, determined and how present you've always been to this mission that you believed in since you were in medical school and you never let it go because you knew that you were going to actually save lives, that you were going to bring you know, healing and happiness to others. And you stayed with it and you stayed with it. Like you said, even when, you know, Medicare to, took 16 years and, and, and you continued and, and continued to grow in all of this. So you've done a uh, wonderful service for a lot of people. But I have a question for you. All these people that uh, have been in this program and they feel better, they, they feel greater. Is it easy for people once they leave to continue to do all this, you know, to maintain the diet, to 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 practice all the things that they were taught in these nine weeks? Yeah, the adherence. Yeah. Well, the um, the first part of your question is uh, what enabled me to be so. My persistence is probably my best and worst quality. It can you know drive people crazy sometimes, but I'm so passionate about this even after 45 years because. You know, how often in life do we get a chance to empower people with information that can help transform their suffering into, you know, joy and pleasure and feeling good? And I feel like I've been living on borrowed time since I decided not to kill myself when I was 19. And that was very liberating in many ways because the same techniques that helped me find more inner sources of peace and joy and well-being and love myself and have compassion for myself uh, are the ones that ultimately got me interested in doing this for other people. So, um, I, you know, for me, that's what it may, both from a, these research studies are really hard to do. They're hard to raise funding. Anytime you're doing something that's never been done before, it's a bit of a catch-22. It's like, why should we give you money to do these studies? Everybody knows it's impossible. And without the funding, you can't show it works. And they don't think it works. They don't want to fund it. So it's always been a challenge. But that's part of what any great adventure, you know, has. It's got all the elements of a great adventure. You know, it's got, you know, life and death issues. You've got known allies and unknown allies and known adversaries and unknown adversaries. And it's just all kind of comes together in this uh, in a meaningful way. But again, I think the reason why we're actually showing such great long-term adherence 
is because it has such a powerful effect on people's lives, as 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 you were saying, uh, Giovanni, that um, you know you got support groups that have been meeting for more than ten years, even though the intervention was only nine weeks or so. And the reason is is that it it really fundamentally addresses that fundamental, primal human need for love and connection and community that so often goes unfulfilled in our culture. And the other reason I think is that people feel better. You know, I think uh, most yeah, of, that's the <laughs> most of the. People that I've seen, I think maybe all of the people that I've seen uh, feel better, and so that's that's in and itself motivating. You know, you're finally sleeping better. You're you just you know, like you said, your your erectile dysfunction has improved. You're uh, you're connecting with family. Now, I we had a when I was doing this, uh, we had a group of longshoremen. These are the worst of the worst in terms of their lifestyle, tough guys, and uh, there were I think there were four in one group. And these guys, these gentlemen, they uh, they loved the program so much that they connected. They used to go to Whole Foods as a group. <laughs> they would uh, they would cry when they did the group sessions. You know, these are they never had this sort of experience in their lives. It really transformed them in in a much in a better way in all aspects of their lives. It's, it well, really- see, that's a, that's the thing is that sometimes the 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 macho guys, you know, who never would want to talk about the feelings. The science kind of gives them permission to do that. And then when they do it, they find it so meaningful that they're often the ones who, we've had marine uh, drill instructors, you know, we've had all kinds of people. They're often the ones who benefit the most because it's such a, a new way of, it uh, gives them permission to to do that. And you measure, you mentioned erectile dysfunction. You know, half of guys in their 40s and 50s have erectile dysfunctions. You know, 70% of guys in their 70s and 80s do. And so you're, you know, erectile dysfunction is one of the, as you know, as a key risk factor for heart disease, because it's it's a systemic issue. If your heart's not getting enough blood flow, your penis is probably not getting enough blood flow. And so when you change your lifestyle, your heart gets more blood flow, your brain gets more blood flow, your sexual organs get more blood flow. And so it becomes like, oh, okay, it's not just about fear of dying, it's about joy of living. It's not about fear of a heart attack or stroke or something. You know, for a month or two after someone's had a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything the doctor tells them, but that doesn't really sustain that because fear is not really... A sustainable motivator, but joy and pleasure and love and feeling good are. So with that love more, you know, part, you know, love yourself, you know, uh, love yourself well enough to eat well enough and live well enough so that everything gets better. You can enjoy loving yourself first. You know, if you're living alone, you're not in a relationship, you know, have a sexual experience with yourself, you know, just so you can love yourself so that you can have that kind of experience with other people. And then when you can connect the dots between what you do and how you feel, oh, when I do this, I feel good. Want to do that? I don't feel so good. Let me do more of this and less of that. Then it comes out of your experience. Like when I eat healthy, my chest pain goes away. When I don't, it comes back. You know, it's like a built-in teacher. Um, these are these mechanisms biologically are dynamic in both directions. And so then it comes out of your experience and it gets you out of the whole diet wars thing. And you know, maybe this or maybe that. It's like, oh, I can see from my own experience that, that as you say, you feel so much better so quickly. It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying, which is not sustainable, to joy of living, which is. I mean, yeah, don't you find that to be true as well? Absolutely. Yes, we find that. And also what I find to be great about this is that, you know, the same risk factors for heart disease are the same risk factors for cognitive dysfunction, cancer. So by doing these things, you're, you know, this is probably the reason why people live longer, or at least their health span is improved. Well, that's the whole unifying theory we talked about earlier. It's, it's it's really just the same disease manifesting in different ways. And does your program offer 
uh, instructions for the family? Does it help the rest of the family to understand the program, to continue the program and support it? Because that is the thing that happens the most, whether you go back home and you go back to different way of eating, different ways of lifestyle and more stressors. So how do you help the whole family or companions or whoever it is in that community to support the changes? Good question. So in the virtual program uh, where we're doing it by Zoom, we actually send two weeks of meals, fresh meals and two snacks a day, three meals a day and two snacks a day to the home. Uh, just say, eat these foods while you're learning how to cook and shop and eat out and so on to kind of make it really easy. And so the spouse then can also see what they're eating and, and how it's improving their lives. And then they are much more likely to, um, to, uh, to, to, to do it as well. Uh, in the Alzheimer's study, we're actually sending food to the spouse and to the patient, which we'd love to be able to do, but we can't really afford to do that. Um, but the more the spouse and the family get involved, the more likely the person is to stay with it. But the support group in many ways almost becomes a surrogate family for many people. It's a place that feels safe enough for them to really be open and authentic in ways that um, some families really don't allow. Yeah, one of the things I show my patients is, uh, you know, in some of your data is the genetic heat maps. It's just a visual that you can really see how it changes your genes. And a heat map, for anyone that doesn't know, is a... Um, when we look at, when researchers look at hundreds, sometimes thousands of genes, you can see genes turned on and turned off. And uh, so tell us more about that, because I, I think that fi I find that to be fascinating. And as a visual motivator, a great visual motivator. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was I almost fell off my chair when I saw these data, you know, because again, when you when the three of us went to medical school, we were told, you know, the only way to change your genes is to change your parents, right? Which of course is impossible. And so uh, your genes are your fate. And we now know that your genes are a predisposition, but if you make big enough changes, we found over 500 genes were changed in just three months. And in every gene that we know of in a beneficial way, in effect, turning on or upregulating the protective genes and downregulating the ones that cause us to get sick, the ones that cause these mechanisms we talked about before. Again, not to blame people, but to empower them. Because if it's all in your genes, then you're just a victim, you know, of bad genes or bad fate or bad karma or bad whatever system you want to put it in. But to say, look, you know, there's a lot I can do. So if your mother and your father and your sister and your brother and your aunts and uncles all died from heart disease at an early age, chances are you, you're genetically predisposed to it. But that's, in, except in maybe the one in thousand people who have, uh, you know, genetically homozygous familial hypercholesterolemias, for the other group, uh, and even with them, if you make big enough lifestyle changes and have drug treatments, uh, your genes are generally not your fate. Again, not to blame people, but to empower them, to say, oh, there's actually a lot you can do. Very good. And um, for your specific, you know, if we want to tell people again, what do you recommend for a diet? Because that is the, the main challenge that people have. We, of course, are a proponent of Mediterranean diet, and we propone a diet that is mostly plant-based, very mm -hmm. little meat, no refined carbs, you know, the whole um, grains and the beans and and all of that. But tell us, what do you recommend uh, your patients? What do you let them eat and and guard from eating too much of? Because this is everybody's challenge, biggest challenge, is the diet. Yeah, 
Well, um, first of all, I don't tell people what to do. I learned a long time ago that even more than being healthy, people want to feel free and in control. And as soon as I say, eat this and don't eat that and do this and don't do that, it's not only not helpful, it's usually counterproductive. That makes them want to do the opposite. And you know, it goes back to when God said, don't eat the apple, and that didn't go so well either, right? <laughs> that was God talking. So, um, But I, what I've learned is that when I started doing this work, I thought, the younger people who had less severe disease would do better, but I was wrong. It turned out it wasn't how old or how sick they were. The primary determinant of how much better they got was the degree of lifestyle change they made, not just in the diet, but all of it. So I wrote a book before the Undo It book called The Spectrum, and um, it kind of alienated some of my uh, friends because I had a piece of salmon on the cover, and people said, what, have you lost your mind? And I said, well, look, it's ounce of prevention, pound of cure. If you're trying to reverse a disease, the reason we were the first to show that is that it's hard. You have to make really big changes. That's the pound of cure. And so the Mediterranean diet is not does not go far enough to reverse heart disease in most people. <laughs> Excuse me. But if you make bigger changes, it does. And so if you're trying to reverse you know, heart disease or Alzheimer's or early stage prostate cancer or other conditions like that, that's you know essentially uh, a whole foods, plant-based, essentially vegan diet. But if you're just trying to stay healthy, lose a few pounds, get your cholesterol or blood pressure, start by making moderate changes. And again, it's not all or nothing. It's the more you change, the more you improve. You decide how much you want to change so that you don't feel like someone's telling you what to do. And you know if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you failed or you're bad. So much of the whole language of diet and lifestyle change has this kind of you know, moralistic, shaming, nurse ratchet, you know, bad, bad, bad kind of thing. I mean, I get accused of that all the time when I go out to dinner. I can't like go out to dinner without someone either apologizing for what they're eating or commenting on what I'm eating. I say, you know, you're forgetting, you know, it's I'm not the food police here. But so if you're just trying to stay healthy, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you're bad, just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. You don't have time to you know, meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. Uh, and then you can say, like, if I want to, like, say, what are your goals? Well, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to get my LDL down 50 points. I want to get my blood pressure down 10 points. Okay, great. What are you eating now? Uh, so in, in the book, I actually categorize foods in the spectrum from group five, the healthiest, to group five, the least healthy, and say, start where you are, move a little in the healthier direction, check what you're trying to do. If you want to lose uh, get 50, you want to lose 50 points on your uh, cholesterol level, try whatever degree of change you're willing to make and then check it again. And let's say it came down 20 points. Say, great. Well, if you're willing to make even bigger changes, chances are that it'll come down even more. So by saying you decide how much you want to change and to what degree, and we'll support that degree of change, it ultimately makes it much more sustainable because they don't feel like they're you know trying to please somebody else or feel controlled by somebody else. They feel like it's coming from within them. But if you're trying to reverse disease, I'd love to be able to tell people that a Mediterranean diet or more moderate changes can reverse it, but for most people, it doesn't go far enough. Now, your your program is not focused on weight loss, but do people lose weight? Yeah, the average person in our study lost 24 pounds in the first year in the uh, Lifestyle Heart Trial, and they kept uh, 12 pounds off after five years. In the larger sample of uh, 15,000 people, the average person lost 10 pounds in the first uh Nine uh, nine weeks actually, um, but that included people who didn't really need to lose weight. So if you just focus on the people who really were overweight, they would have lost even more than that. And they usually can keep most of that weight off because we don't we're not getting into this 
war with food. You know, it's not about counting calories and restricting portion sizes. It's really hard to uh, to maintain that. It, it, it's changing more the type of food than the amount of food. And you know, Sandra, as you were saying, if you eat with awareness, then the you know you learn from your experience that pay attention to when you're full. You know, not when you're stuffed, but just when you're full when you've had enough. Pay attention to how you feel after you've eaten healthy food versus unhealthy food. And then it comes out of your own experience, not because some doctor or some book told you, but you say, oh, when I do this, I feel good. I lose weight. I'm happier. My pain goes away. I have more energy. I think more clearly, you know, et cetera. It's confusing for people is that when they do eat junk food, that they do feel better at the moment. And they really feel better, right? That there is a lot of dopamine release that that makes you feel happy. And then you start chasing that feeling, like with everything that increases your dopamine, right? You start yes. chasing that feeling. So it's because true. it will be confusing for people when you say pay attention to what you eat, that, that makes you feel good. We're talking about long term and sometimes people don't have the patience for for paying attention to to longer benefits. Well, not so long really, because what happens when you eat a lot of junk food, like a lot of sugar, let's say, is that your blood sugar zooms up. So you got that rush, you know, it's like a drug. It is a drug, really. But then it's soon followed by that crash. You know, it's like if you take a pendulum, you pull it to one side, it doesn't just stop in the middle, it goes to the other. So it goes too high, then it goes too low. So yeah, you get that rush, like someone doing cocaine gets that rush or amphetamine, but then you crash. And there's a good cure for that low blood sugar feeling, which is more sugar. So that's what makes it so addictive. So we ask people to not just pay attention to the short run, but to the longer run. But your point is a good one. And I think that one of the reasons why uh, what kind of brings together the loneliness and depression and the diet is that people self-medicate in a way with food and with other things. You know, I've had um, patients say, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or they'll say food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or sugar numbs the pain or uh, eating, you know, all the time, you know, distracts me from my pain or uh, watching TV distracts me from my pain or, um, you know, opioids, you know, we have this opioid epidemic, I numb my pain or, um, you know, working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of distracting myself from my pain. So it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sandra, about uh, paying attention and, uh, and awareness, you know, is that, oh, um, why am I doing these things? You know, if I can connect the dots between when I find myself eating junk food and how I'm feeling, and am I using that to kind of lift my energy level or to kind of numb my loneliness into my depression? And when we can teach people other ways of dealing with their stress, like meditation or dealing with their loneliness, like these support groups, which are really based on creating real authentic connections between people, we find they're much less, much less likely to need to do those things, that the information is important, but clearly it's not enough for most people. It's not like you say, uh, Mr. Jones, I want you to quit smoking. It's not good for you. But oh, I didn't know smoking is bad for me. I'll quit today. It's like everybody knows it's bad. The question is, why do people smoke? And more often than not, it's because of the loneliness and depression and the isolation that they feel. And as a psychiatrist, you probably understand this better than I do. And so when we can work at that level, not just on the information, not just on the behavior, but the deeper level we then find that they're much more likely to make and maintain uh, lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. And that's what has happened during the pandemic. The loneliness may increased all the substance use. Exactly. Everybody. I've seen so many patients that were not alcoholic and became alcoholic during the pandemic. Exactly. And so that's why I love doing this work because 
the it's a much more holistic integrative approach that works on all these different levels not just on the behavior not just on the information not just on one aspect so much of science is like one independent variable one dependent variable keep everything else constant but in behavioral studies you're never just changing one thing so we're saying let's change all these things and the paradox is that it works actually much better than just changing one what about alcohol what's your uh, position on that for you know because a lot of patients of mine ask me you know they i my nutrition uh question i asked them about alcohol how much they drink and what is your recommendation to patients that go through the program you know the amount of alcohol and and how it affects everything yeah it used to be thought that the people that had one or two drinks a day lived longer than those who didn't drink at all or those who drank more than that but there have been a number of studies that have come out in the last few years that have said that that's really not true uh that even a single drink increases your risk particularly for women and there are things like breast and, and uh and colon cancer uh again it doesn't say i don't tell people never drink but don't drink because you think it's good for you drink because you want to drink you know um that uh uh the studies that show that people who had one or two drinks live longer were because they generally had other behaviors that were healthy and just people often who have one or two drinks a day do it with other people that's you know happy hour they that's their way of uh, having social support and letting their defenses down and and hanging out with each other so but if you just look at the alcohol per se when you correct for all these other factors um even one drink a day is not a healthy thing to do so in our study we say if you're going to drink don't drink more than two drinks a day but don't drink don't start drinking because you think it's it's beneficial it's not but if you want to accept the whatever risk that increased one or two drinks a day brings you that's you know a personal decision we don't proscribe it we don't prescribe it so now tell us what is it that you do to look this good at 70. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I try to follow this orn weird Ornish program, this weird guy back in Sausalito somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do what I tell other people to do, and I have a very loving uh, relationship with my wife, and uh, she just uh, makes me uh, feel like the luckiest guy in the world every day when I get up and get to spend time together. We work together. We play together. We've worked together for 27 years. We co-authored the most recent book together. It's just been uh, a joy. So I just try to find, you know, I, I we have so much. We can identify with that. We do the same thing. <laughs> I can feel that. I can feel the love that you both have with each other. It's a beautiful thing to be able to do that. And it keeps you young. You know, it's, uh, and it, you know, if you have a sense of meaning in your life, you know, sometimes um, when I work with people, my wife and I'll say like, why do you want to make these lifestyle changes? Well, I want to live longer. Well, why do you want to live longer? Why do I want to live longer? Doesn't everybody? Well, no. You know, if you asked me when I was 19, I would have, I was ready to die. You know, a lot of people are lonely, depressed, isolated. And then telling somebody who's lonely, depressed, they're going to live longer is not really that motivating. So if you say, why do you want to live longer? People say, oh, let me think about that. Gosh, you know, well, I want to be with my spouse. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to dance at their wedding. You know, I want to walk them down the aisle. Whatever it is that you find gives you that sense of meaning, it kind of goes back to, um, Man's Search for Meeting, Viktor Frankl's, you know, seminal book that the people who survived uh, concentration camps weren't necessarily the healthiest or the strongest. They're the ones who had the strongest sense of meaning and purpose and joy in their lives. And so I've learned that so much of this I can create. I can create a hell for myself and I can create a heaven for myself. And um, it, it, a lot of it has to do, so much of this becomes self-fulfilling. And so I really consciously try to become more aware of the negative thoughts and you know, it kind of goes back to loving yourself again. If I, you know, if I feel like I'm, you know, not a good person and, you know, not lovable, then 
I'm not lovable. <laughs> you know, that's what I put out in the world. If I can say, gosh, you know, I certainly have my faults, but I'm I'm doing okay. You know, I'm I'm helping a lot of people. That gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. Then I can then go out and really do that for other people. So I'm sure I'd be curious to know what, what you're what, what you find uh, in that in those areas. Well, what we do in the, in this areas, yeah, in the sense of finding meaning and purpose and what and love that you share. Well, this is something we do all the time that, that we love. We love. We love a lot. We have a big family, and we love them. We we do the work. That's one of the things that I say to to everybody around us. We have done a lot of work to keep this love going. You know, we love our patients. Our patients do know that they are loved by us and cared yes. by us. Yes. And that's partly why they get better and they feel better. Yes. They heal. So, and and I tell people, you have to put the work, right? Love should be easy, but requires some work. It's not just, I love you, is not enough, right? Do the work to show the love. It's, yes. Is and, and and show up for it. Well, it's it's so beautiful to hear you say that because I often describe our program as a love based program, you know, which it is. In fact, I think I might have given the first major lecture at the American College of Cardiology. This is when Kim Williams was the uh, president of the ACC on love, you know, at a cardiology meeting. You think that you know that's that should be like the heart is the symbol of love, and and yet it's kind of a four letter word. There, it's like right. oh, you're not supposed to love your patients. You're not even supposed to love yourself, you know, and so. Um, you know, to just say, look, that's what makes our program work so well. As you say, the patients learn to love each other. They come together as total strangers, and within a few days, often, and certainly within a few weeks, they're able to express their love for themselves and for each other. It's a, it, you know, that I remember when one of the one of the first studies we were doing, one of the patients was about to have a second angiogram, and somebody said, "Hey, Conrad, are you anxious about what your test is going to show? If your arteries are more open or not?" He said, "Well." I want my arteries to be more open, but I'm not as concerned as about that as I used to be because I'm more open, you know. And of course, when you're more open, then your arteries tend to be more open as well, you know, as above, so below. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and can definitely feel from you the love for you have <laughs> for all the work that you do and how beautifully you've done this. So, thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dean. I mean, you were truly a visionary as a young man, which is quite remarkable. And then you became a, a pioneer, and now you're you're very inspiring. I think that you inspire so many patients and so many people. So you know, and doctors, hopefully, very thankful. Uh, well, I feel like this is what we're co-creating together, you know, and it is. And so I want to thank you both for all the amazing work that you're doing and that you've continued to do. And so thank you for the opportunity to be on your show again. Awareness is the first step in healing. I hope that at least some people have. Uh, raise their awareness from that. And uh, I'm so grateful to both of you for um, signing such a bright light out there in the darkness. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Same to you. Okay. If you are new to the show, welcome. And if you are returning, we are so grateful for your participation and support. We hope you go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show, leave feedback, write a review, or send questions. They love questions and look at every question that is submitted. The content of the Sicilian Secret Diet are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be a medical diagnosis or treatment advice. A doctor-patient relationship is not created and any questions related to your specific physical or mental health should be directed to your healthcare practitioner. So hello and thank you for joining Sandra and Giovanni for another episode of the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan Podcast.